welcome back to episode three of Girl Mode, a gaming podcast from two cool trans women. I am one of your hosts, Willa Rowe. And I'm your other host, Robin B. So to start off, let's just get into the news for the week. How about that, Robin? Sounds sounds great. Let's talk about the the dissolution of Twitter, apparently, which yeah. has kind of been an ongoing concern this week. So as of recording, Elon Musk has assumed control of Twitter uh, sometime in the last week, uh, and it immediately went downhill. Um, everything is on fire now. Everything's on fire. And I, I know everyone always talks about Twitter as like a hell site that is always on fire anyway. But it's now there is like a secondary fire that is even harming the original fire. <laughs> um, I mean, like moderation teams are gutted, like the entire operation of the site, basically, like 50 percent of the employees or something have been have been terminated, yeah. um, which like obviously is like a horrible catastrophe from a labor standpoint to the point that he's like currently facing a class action lawsuit for violating labor laws by not giving enough notice of these layoffs. But I think maybe like closer to home for both of us and probably a lot of folks who are hypothetically listening. Twitter has always been a nightmare, but it's also always been a place for people, especially marginalized people, to find communities and to find, you know, some semblance of of an out, a safe outlet, even though it, we've also been beset by trolls on all sides. Uh, yeah, and for people who work in like media, it is kind of the way that you find work more than almost any other. So I don't know. It is is as silly as it can kind of feel to be like mourning this this website going down. It's also like legitimately pretty scary for for a good number of people. Yeah, it's like not only is it how you find work, it's also how you you know build a following and like find other writers and kind of get a community. And now everybody's kind of panicking and like, are, are we jumping ship? Where are we jumping ship to? Or are we all just going to go down with the ship and watch it burn? I feel like I'm in a weird spot with that because I like, I don't, I'm not super active on Twitter. I don't really have a following to speak of, but it has been, you know, an enjoyable place to sort of like, I don't know, at least see the discussions and, and put dip my toes in every, every once in a while. And to see that going away is just... You know, as rough as it can be, sometimes it, it does feel like that it's definitely leaving a leaving a gap where it was that that kind of needs to be filled. You know. Yeah, I, I definitely agree, and I think the thing that people are mostly thinking right now is, and it's true. I would say there's nothing that will like replace Twitter because we've all invested so much in here, and we're all right. here, and now everybody's like going to different communities and different other social medias, like. I know a lot of games people and games journalists, we've kind of jumped in on co-host and been like, this is the new hot shit. But like other people are like, oh, do we go back to Tumblr because we can, you know, post boobs there again now? Or do we go to Mastodon or do we just kind of give up? Yeah, I, I support the exodus back to Tumblr just because it is a, an absolute pit of chaos. And I enjoy that. Uh, I refuse to learn how Mastodon works. And even just the prospect of like having to refine the people who you follow is a weird, I, I don't know, there there was a strange sort of comfort of just knowing that it was all there and never really thinking that it was it would be threatened in any way. Yeah, I think I'm like actually more upset about this than I expected yeah. because, you know, having like been in the journalism and like been in the industry now for like coming up on like half a year. I feel like I'm just starting to like build a community and like build a bit of a following of like people who read my work or pe people whose work I follow and like a bunch of cool mutuals and like other trans people and other journalists and stuff. And now I'm like, oh no, am I going to lose all this? Or how do I like, how do I make sure I can like stay in contact with like all these different people? Because we, We've talked about it. It it is kind of like very important for our work, honestly. Twitter is Twitter is part of the job in a, in a big way. Yeah, it, it unfortunately it is. I yeah, I don't know. You you definitely are more engaged with that stuff than I am. Uh, I feel most of the time like kind of an observer more than like an active participant on it. But 
It is yeah. still something that will be sad to see go away. I would say for me, one of the reasons I've like been an active participant is because just like the media landscape, I kind of understood that it was like part of my job, like to build a brand kind of, mm-hmm. and, you know, make people know who I am on social and push my work or like talk to other people. So that that's, that's like one of the reasons I like am active on Twitter and it is kind of like, oh, well, I guess that's kind of done now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's all true. I just, I don't have the fucking energy most of the time. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, ex- I'm, I'm kind of eager to see what happens with co-host. It's like, it's not going to be anywhere near as big as Twitter, but I think that's actually, at least for me, kind of a selling point where mm-hmm. you're not going to be inundated with spam from you know, Heinz ketchup or whatever at all times. (laughs) And hopefully there will be fewer absolute bad actors. I I like that they're focused on like sustaining what they have rather than, you know, infinite capitalistic growth uh, and, you know, seem to at least take uh, moderation seriously in a way that Twitter really never has. Yeah. So from a more like, I don't know, a, a person who's probably like negligent about growing an audience and is more interested in just like finding and making cool shit and just like kind of seeing what happens with it. Um, I'm excited for co-host. Also, like despite how how kind of scary it is for Twitter to go away, the past few days have been a great time on Twitter (laughs) because everyone is just like, we all know the, the clock is running. So everyone it's, it's is just getting at the end of the world. more and more deranged <laughs> as time goes on. It really does feel like everyone there has like stayed too late at a party and it's just going to keep getting weirder until it gets shut down. Yeah, I feel like, you know, at this point, I'm just in it. To, to, I'm in it to the end. Who cares? We'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Let's see how bad it can get. Yeah. Speaking of like things in the industry that are <laughs> kind of bad and also shared on Twitter <laughs> and stuff, let's talk about this really interesting interview on IGN about Final Fantasy 16. So there is this interview with IGN um, from Kat Bailey, and it was with the director of the game, the localization director, and the creative director, and the producer, Yoshi P., and they were, they were asked a bunch of questions about Final Fantasy 16 and just kind of how they thought about it. And one of the specific questions that has spiraled out from this interview came when they asked... Just looking through it. Here, I can... <laughs> um, yeah, go ahead. So the, the question was, uh, basically, can we expect to see black characters in Final Fantasy 16 or people of color in general? Uh, and the question goes on to specify, like, the trailers that they've shown so far have been almost entirely white characters. So people have been kind of discussing whether that's what we're going to see in the full game or whether there's just like characters have not been shown off yet. Yeah. And then (laughs) what did they respond? (laughs) Well, it was a bunch of bullshit. Um, So, so Naki Yoshida, AKA Yoshi P responded. The response was just extremely disappointing. It's, it's, it's a very long answer that I'm not going to, like quote from or read yeah, in its entirety. It was very but... vague and kind of non. It was basically yes. like, oh well, you know, we're we're basing this loosely on like a European fantasy setting, and we just don't really have the space for like quote unquote diversity because that's just not realistic. Yeah, there's a strange. It's just an incredibly strange and disappointing answer where he says. You know, we we can't incorporate this diversity because the the era that we're basing the game on didn't have that kind of diversity. And then the answer also kind of implies that like putting that much diversity in would be making it too much like the modern day. So it's simultaneously like too realistic and too unrealistic. Mm-hmm. In it's just it's it's kind of all just nonsense. Um, it is a long-winded answer with lots of explanations about like well, the, the, you know, actual circumstances of the, this continent that they're on would not allow for that kind of blah, 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 blah. And it, it's the kind of nonsense that we've heard a million times from various game developers, where it's like, for some reason, they seem to think that because they're taking aesthetic inspiration from 
the medieval era of Europe, that somehow they need to try to replicate the conditions that were actually there, as opposed to just using it for inspiration. Yeah, it also like even historically ignores the fact that like, medieval Europe existed in a global world to some extent. They did have trade and interactions with other cultures. Yeah. Well, that's part of what makes it so, so odd is like, they're saying we need to replicate this. We need to make it realistic. But if you actually look at the history, it's not realistic. Like the thing they're basing it on isn't the actual conditions of the period they're modeling. It's a modern misunderstanding of what those conditions were. Yeah. And I think one of the interesting things is that they also talk in the interview about comparisons people have made to like Game of Thrones Mm -hmm. in its mature tone and how it's going for like a more serious kind of like dark fantasy kind of style. And similar to, you know, this interview, Game of Thrones has gotten a lot of shit for the same thing where it's just kind of a white centric fantasy setting where they ignore the idea that race exists. Um, except for falling into tropes of like certain othered characters who are seen as like exotic and usually, you know, antagonistic. Yeah. It's just, it's so frustrating. Like with, with either game of Thrones or final fantasy, it's like, well, you are drawing, you have to draw the line somewhere. So why have you decided to draw the line that like, okay, this is going to be realistic, except there's going to be dragons and magic. That's fine. But saying that there are people who are not white in the world, somehow that's that's too much. Mm-hmm. Like, w- what is it about those aspects of the setting that that makes people think, well, we you know we have to have dragons, we have to have giant crystals dotting the landscape. Like, Final Fantasy sixteen is a game about giant monsters punching each other. It's <laughs> there's no part of it that requires realism. You know, it, it's like it's always a disappointing argument, but in cases like this, it's especially disappointing because there's literally no reason to even hold yourself to that standard. Yeah. I think also one of the, I think one of the reasons that this interview is like making a lot of waves is the fact that this is coming from Naoki Yoshida as well. Yes. And he's someone who's like held in such high esteem to like, he's put on such a pillar that he can't do anything wrong that people are like, Ooh, wait, this is, Oh, he fucked up a little bit. This doesn't, really track and isn't great for Final Fantasy 16 or like him. Well, up until this point, it's just been like, oh, Yoshi P is, you know, the savior of Final Fantasy 14 and he's so cool and he's like so good with the community. But like this is not really that same, you know, personality or aspects. Yeah. And I mean, that's that was problematic to begin with, because it's not as if Final Fantasy 14 doesn't have these problems, you know, like, I always think, too, there was a storyline, I think it was toward the end of A Realm Reborn, where there's, like, the the Alamegans. They're this sort of, like, group of refugees, essentially. And, and your character is, for all intents and purposes, tasked with, like, putting down a, a an uprising among them to, like, gain more political power and to, like, get supplies that they needed to keep themselves alive. And that is, like, such a source. It, it's always stuck in my mind as such a wild turn for the story to take and it's not the only example either like it's it is not a perfect game by any means there is no such thing as one and if there were it wouldn't be this one it's it's not that it isn't present in square enix's other work or in even in yoshi p's other work it's just like i I think a lot of us probably liked to imagine that that was sort of a, a circumstance of that some weird thing happened in the production of that game and it was a long time ago and we honestly are probably too eager to forget those things and to give credit to people and to just assume that they're, you know, doing their best Yeah. to see that this happen again. I don't know. It's not like, yeah, this isn't new. Like Square Enix is not, is not good at this in general, but I think just to put it, to see it put in those terms is especially frustrating because it's not just that they screwed up. This was a design philosophy and that's so much more upsetting than a group of people trying their best and failing. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we want to talk about representation and the way developers kind of think about that, then I think that's a great way to start talking about, you know, a couple things in the past week. Specifically, I think one better 
example of like doing representation well and the and how development of representation works is Catalyst in Apex mm-hmm. Legends. Thank you for segueing us into something that will make me less angry. Um, <laughs> yeah, so also in this past week, the launch of Apex Legends' uh, latest season, Eclipse, has brought with it uh, a new character named Catalyst. Uh, Catalyst is the the first trans woman in Apex Legends, and I mean one of the few trans women characters in like any major video game. Mm-hmm. I would probably, I mean, I would, I would go as far as to say like the highest profile trans character. Like, I would say probably in a AAA like, game. Honestly, between Catalyst and Bridget and Guilty Gear this year, I'd say yeah. Honestly, it's those two. Yeah. And I mean, that's actually like also a a great point of comparison because Bridget was this character who had this very nebulous identity, uh, was kind of like at the center of lots of like very transphobic jokes and and slurs and things. uh, And only recently has have the developers actually said like, okay, like this thing that the that was hinted at and sort of like headcanoned is actually true. Whereas with Catalyst, from the very beginning, she is a trans woman, and it is extremely clear, and it is made explicit in the text of the game. Like, the, the very first introduction that anyone got to her was this trailer that was released a few weeks ago. And in that, there's, a, a, like, an explicit statement from her saying, like, mentioning that she transitioned, you know. Mm-hmm. And then in this past week, the, the update finally launched, and we got to see her in-game, and... There are a lot of references in game as well, like lots of her voice lines refer to her being trans. So leading up to the launch of the latest season, I actually got the opportunity to talk to uh, a couple of folks who were involved in the creation of Catalyst. Uh, so I talked to Samantha Coleman, who was a senior game designer at Respawn. She has since left uh, and joined another studio. So in, in discussions about Catalyst, the team that is still at Respawn has talked a lot about how in, in developing her, they spoke to internal like LGBTQ groups uh, and like queer team members. And Samantha Coleman is a trans woman who, who was working at, at Respawn. And so she basically like, consulted on, on Catalyst design. She, in our interview, she referred to herself as kind of like the subject matter expert on being a trans woman. If you've heard the term that's been thrown around uh, relating to Catalyst, like that she's a techno witch, which mm-hmm. is something that's sort of like informed her entire aesthetic. Uh, Samantha Coleman is the person who came up with that that concept. Uh, so I talked to her, and I also got to talk to Melly Grant, who is the voice actress who portrays Catalyst. And it was, I mean, to change directs just, you know, slightly, just from a personal standpoint, it was really, uh, it felt very fulfilling to get to, to talk to them about that. Uh, I had this realization as I was writing the piece that, like, everyone involved in this piece is a trans woman, and that feels very, very cool. Every time I've ever interviewed a trans person for anything I've written, basically every single time someone mentions the fact that like we so rarely get to tell our own stories, like the trans stories are told so infrequently anyway. And when they are in, in major pieces of media, they're almost always told by cis people. And so the fact that, you know, trans folks were like, trans women were, were specifically involved in the creation of this trans woman character is itself pretty rare and, and pretty special. Uh, and I just felt like, I don't know, I felt immensely privileged to be able to talk about that. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it was very fulfilling for me. And, and I'm really hoping that folks respond to the things that Samantha and, and Melly said uh, well, because they were, they both had lots of interesting things to say about like the responsibility of it you know yeah my like first question when i heard about catalyst and i watched the trailer was like i was very very excited having come off the whole you know bridget announcement of bridget Mm -hmm. being like now officially a trans woman there was a like a bit of a debacle with bridget because they were like you know she is a trans woman we want this to be canon we really want to like respect Mm -hmm. that but then they got a cis voice actress to voice, yeah. um, to voice Bridget. And so my first question with Catalyst was like, okay, but who's the voice actress? I really want to know. I want to know if you guys like put in the work to give this to a trans like actor. And they did. And that was Melly Grant. And so that was like, 
one of the specific things about this announcement that um, kind of really made me think, okay, like this is this is different. It does seem like they really put in the effort from the beginning. And that's something you talk to them both about, about, you know, representing the, the community of trans women. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, obviously I can't speak to everything that's going on in the studio, but it really, from my perspective, it really does look like they did the work from the beginning, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I said, you know, they reached out to internal LGBT groups. They brought Glad in to consult on them. Uh, and something that everybody has said is like, they knew from the beginning, like as soon as they wanted this character to be a trans woman, they knew they were going to cast a trans woman. As far as I've heard, like there was never any consideration that it would be a cis actor taking this role. Mm-hmm. Which is something that I talked about a lot with Melly is is that being a very prevalent problem, uh, and and she spoke. This actually isn't probably going to make it into my word count, but she spoke a lot about the responsibility that she feels as someone who is like relative to other trans actors, like in a position of of some privilege and some power to be able to speak out about when people are casting things these things poorly. Or when people when the characters are written poorly, uh, and and the I don't know the the responsibility that she feels to to use the voice that she has to speak up and and kind of defend the space for you know trans actors who might come after her, uh, and that was just like it was extremely heartening to hear, and and I could you could also kind of like you can sort of fill in the blanks of of what she must have been through to get to that point and what any trans actor must go through. Just knowing like something she mentioned was saying like she has what she described as like a, a like gender non-conforming voice. And so casting directors don't necessarily know what to do with that. You know, mm-hmm. she's been cast as like a cis man, a cis woman, a, no, a trans woman. It's like there's something that's so like versatile about that, but also people don't know what to do with you. And so to to see her land at, at this and get to portray a trans woman with with her voice, which is like very distinct and. Like, I don't know, I, I'm i glad that they actually put the work in to, to do this right. It feels, I don't know, it just feels great to see. Yeah, it's um, it's so interesting to me, because like, not to be like, shitty to Apex Legends, but it's like a Battle Royale FPS game. And mm-hmm. it was like, never the game that I would expect to be really pretty great about representation, specifically with like, both race and the LGBTQ community. Like, they really like all their heroes have a wide array of representation. And like before Catalyst, they have, you know, a character who's canonically non-binary, like I think several characters who are, you know, canonically like gay or part of the queer community also. So it's just, it's great to see that this is like a team that consistently is, is putting this as a priority in, in the development process. Yeah, and, and I will say, like, I think the way that they handled it is also great, where it's, like, um, something, that, again, that, that Samantha and Melly both mentioned was, like, they wanted to be very clear, like, there will be no debate, uh, you know, among fans over whether Catalyst is trans, she is trans, but they didn't want to center, like, make her whole story about transition, mm-hmm. because in, again, those, like, vanishingly rare opportunities we do get to see trans stories, it's almost always the transition story. And it's all about the the pain and trauma of that, which are very real things, but it seems to be the only story that gets told about us. Yeah. And so they wanted to be, to just to have someone who had transitioned a long time before we met her and just is a, a human being living her life and, like, having interests that have nothing to do with her gender you know yeah um back in 2020 both the last of us part two and tell me why came out which both had you know trans narratives within them and i remember at the time when i played them it was kind of those one of those things where i was like i guess i should be happy with what we get (laughs) but i was i I was like playing them and i had issues because i just constantly was like, I feel like both of these stories just focus on the trauma narrative, which I really, really didn't love. And I publicly talked about this, how I very much disliked this. And it does feel like, you know, Catalyst is different, which I I do, I do really like. It's interesting. Do you, (laughs) this is like a weird question and a big question, but like, do you feel like represented by Catalyst? I mean... 
part of what I that what I like about it is like Catalyst doesn't really remind me of me. She doesn't feel like me. She just is also a trans woman. And I think that's a good thing because it means they're not going for like these broad stereotypes. They're not they're not just going for like things you can pull out of the Wikipedia article about what it is to be a transgender person. Like she's specific enough that she feels like an individual and we don't share that much in common. And and that feels fucking great, you know? <laughs> like the fact that there can be this trans woman who is like a very different person from me, but we also share this very important part of our identity. Like, that's great. That's what I want out of representation. You know, I don't want it just to be like the, the recognizable signs and symbols. I will say though, I, so I played a little bit of Apex Legends uh, just so I could play with Catalyst. I was very bad, <laughs> but I, when I like booted up the game and like was like on the character select screen, I picked Catalyst as my character and then just kind of sat there and just just looked at her on the the screen and just like, I don't know, there was something um, that felt really, just really good to me about being able to see this character and know like she is a, a, a trans woman who's being represented in this way and being represented as as powerful. And, um, and then, you know, especially to hear like, Millie's voice coming out of her mouth like this is a trans character who is speaking with a trans woman's actual voice it's just um I don't know there was something really powerful about it that 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 we can be represented in that way and just like be part of the cast and be be part of the story and and just like knowing that I can like show up in matches with like playing as Catalyst with my little pride flag emblem as my my thing that comes up in on the scoreboard to just be like yeah, I'm a proud trans woman and I'm here to kick your fucking ass. And it's just like, it just, it feels, it felt very good. Like it's corny, but I don't know. I, I was, I was moved by it in a way that I didn't expect to be. Yeah. I don't know. How do you, how do you feel about that? Yeah, no, I like, I, I agree with the point that you're saying where I think something that happens too often is that, you know, marginalized communities in this case, you know, trans women were, were shown to be a monolith like mm-hmm. it's like okay this is the this is the trans woman character so she's got to like you know mark the boxes we have trauma we have the ikea shark plushie we're good um <laughs> don't you dare knock the ikea shark plushie and um i do like that catalyst is her own person and she is unique and i i also don't like see too much of my mm-hmm self in her but i know we have a kinship because mm-hmm. we're trans and it's like i can see her and be like i know that we have like a shared experience or a shared you know knowledge and it is just cool to see that she's just there and is like yeah i am i'm a cool trans techno witch yeah i like it i i do really like catalyst and i'm i am very impressed by respawn for for doing this and making her a character yeah. Well, funny side note that you said, like, you know, we're not a monolith. The exact language that Melly used in our interview to talk about how, like, we are like a very diverse community. Uh, but when we speak to people on the outside of that, we often appear as a monolith, mm-hmm. like was the exact language she used. So, yeah, I don't know. I think there is there is something to that idea. Like, it's it's very clearly something that that weighs on us i think yeah uh the way in which we are often seen as just this kind of like amorphous blob as opposed to a group of individuals yeah uh, and it's good to see you know a, a trans character represented as an individual mm-hmm. so i also had uh another interview in the past couple of weeks that i i have been excited about yeah, and you've been that i wanted very to, busy. to share a bit of uh, so what was sorry that? you've been very busy yes oh yes uh yeah it's been, I've been busier than I think I normally am in the past two weeks. Uh, I've had some stuff that I've, uh, I've been very happy to get out. I also got to interview Gareth, Damian, Martin. They are the developer of Citizen Sleeper. Uh, you, you may know uh, Jump Over the Age is like the, the name of the developer. They also developed In Other Waters, if you play that, another excellent narrative game. Yeah. So Citizen Sleeper is hands down one of my favorite games of the year it's the I, uh, I know you're it's also the a huge fan it's my favorite game it's, of the year i th- i have an internal battle going on with 
Citizen Sleeper and one other game. Yeah. But it is at the very least my second favorite game of the year. <laughs> yeah, we both absolutely loved it. Um, we've we've both written about how much we love it. Uh, and in July, the first DLC episode for the game was released, which uh, was called Flux. It was like about an hour long, you know, continuation of the story. And then in the past couple of weeks, the second episode, second of three, was released. Uh, this one's called Refuge. Continues the story that was started by the first episode and kind of sets up for the events of the conclusion, which comes at the end or at the beginning of 2023. Uh, so uh, in anticipation of that second episode being released, I got to talk to Gareth about all sorts of things. Uh, <laughs> we talked about the production of Citizen Sleeper and and these two episodes, uh, a bit about In Other Waters, which is currently uh, they're working with a tabletop designer to turn into a, a tabletop module for the game Mothership, which is a great horror game. And so we talked about all these things. Uh, we spent a lot of time in the interview talking about kind of the themes of Citizen Sleeper, particularly where it comes to the ideas that it has around bodies and labor and the way that we we trade our bodies away to secure some kind of, you know, material comfort and what that what that does to us and to our sense of identity. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of complex ideas in there about, about that, where that, that is itself a kind of tragedy, but there's also a community that comes out yeah, of it. Yeah, I mean, Citizen Sleeper is, it's such an interesting game for the fact that so many themes can be read into it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it does most, like all of them well, like it's a story about labor and it's a story about communities and it's a story about like body, bodily autonomy. And like, for me, I, when I played Citizen Sleeper, I, I felt like it was a trans game. Absolutely. And that was like my connection with it is I was just like, oh man, you know, there's all these questions of like, become like being in a quote unquote, like new body or a body that doesn't feel right. And then also <laughs> you have to like work a bunch to try to make money to get the medicine you need. And you have to take your medicine on a timely manner and everything or else you start losing your mind. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's like, yes, that <laughs> I had uh, a very similar response to the game of like that, you know, when that, that beat happens early in the game and I was like, interesting, <laughs> this is saying some things. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I actually, we, we talked about that a bit in the interview and Gareth actually said, uh, I'm just going to read the quote here. For me, the trans aspect is the primary aspect of the text, but my experience relates to other things outside of that. Mm -hmm. So Gareth is non-binary, and so they talked about how that informed a lot of the kind of ideas around bodies in Citizen Sleeper, but also they are not like exclusively a non-binary person in the way that we were just talking about like catalyst representation. The only fact about her is not that she is trans. Yeah. The only fact about Gareth is not that they are non-binary, but it is something that kind of filters the rest of your experiences. Uh, and so even if you don't share that same experience you can see yourself in the same characters with the same interactions. You can apply your own life to them as well. Yeah, I think it was. It's, it's very interesting the way that it is, like you're saying, it's a story about how mainly like corporations and, and labor use the body and try to take ownership mm -hmm. and control of the body. And like specifically as trans and non-binary people there's like a very familiar reading in that but also it's just a larger message about labor at large that a lot of people can associate with i think one of my favorite things that <laughs> related to that conversation in the article is is the quote where gareth said um <laughs> commander shepherd from mass effect reminds them a lot of their shitty bosses <laughs> I was pumping my fucking fist in the interview when they said that. I was like, this is a gift. Thank you. The quote there is, I wanted to make a sci-fi game that relates to my life, and I felt like other people would want that experience too. I love Mass Effect, but when I play Mass Effect, Commander Shepard reminds me of bosses I've had, not of me. <laughs> and just like, I, yeah, I was just internally hollering at, at how excited I was to write that fucking poll quote. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so good. And it, it's just a really funny and accurate interpretation, I think, uh, of Absolutely. Commander Shepard, you know, space cop and bad manager. Yeah. Um, to, for something you just said, that was that um, that idea that like, whatever your interpretation is, we all have this experience of of trading our, our bodies away of, of, you know, labor changing us. 
And it really reminds me of something that like Bong Joon-ho said about Parasite. Um, when he was writing that, it was like a very, it was very tied to his own experiences. And he says something about like wondering if global audiences would respond to it because it felt so unique to, to his culture. And he said something to the effect of like, but then I realized we're all living in the same country and that country is capitalism. I think about that constantly. And I think that really is reflected in Citizen Sleeper as well, mm-hmm. where no matter what your individual experience is, that need and that that kind of all-consuming desire for for growth and for labor uh, has has really infected everyone's life so much that we can all have this shared experience, even with vastly different circumstances. Yeah. And like for me, so, you know, when I played Citizen Sleeper, I, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was incredible. And then when Flux, the first DLC episode came out, I immediately played that and I ended up writing an article about it because I thought it was so good. And what I ended up like taking away from it is like Citizen Sleeper mostly tells the story of you as the sleeper, like coming to this new place where you have nothing and you have to like rely on the kindness of strangers and Mm -hmm. some of your own work to try to like make a new home. And then Flux feels felt like to me like the perfect flipping of the script where you basically as the sleeper kind of have like gotten into a rhythm on the eye which is the space station and you feel like a little bit more comfortable you're not living the the high life but you're 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 set you have a place you you have steady flow of like medication and money you're doing fairly well and then these refugees show up and it's like they've taken the place that you started in and now suddenly the question to you is are you willing to put your neck out on the line for them the way people did for you? And I thought this was such like a beautiful, well-written story. And then I read your interview and Gareth is like, oh yeah, I just kind of made the DLC episodes after the game came out because people seem to like the game. <laughs> yeah, so I I, I played the, the, the first DLC last night and, and I was very much struck by that same thing. Uh, there's there's kind of a passage early on in in the episode where it describes you looking out at the flotilla that, of refugees that comes in and just imagining the people who are living there and knowing that like the administration on the the station you live on debating whether they deserve to be safe and for me like that my playthrough of the the base game I chose to follow a story that has to do with like a person caring for a a, essentially a refugee child and i just couldn't stop thinking about like all the effort that i put in to keep her safe and then imagining a thousand times that happening and it was like a really really deeply emotional moment of that but to get back to that quote that was something i was like so shocked by that that was one of the first things that they said in the interview was how so the idea for the flotilla came early in the development, um, but they realized very early on that like it was just too big to include in the base game. So the way they put it is just they kind of like set it aside and you know thought if if it comes to the point where they can do DLC, it will be about the flotilla. And then after the game was received so well, they went back and finished all that stuff. And yeah, I was completely shocked by that too. That like each of these episodes has been made in one month, which is astounding. Which is wildly quick pace like to even to even get the writing done in that amount of time seems absurd to me the tools that they've built for the to make the game apparently are like make it very very quick to like translate that writing into the game itself but it's it's still my mind was so blown by the fact that that is one you know a month of work obviously building on many many other months of work to get to that point but i think it does lead into the or it does kind of feed off of the idea that these are episodes like gareth talked about tv seasons being kind of a an an inspiration for how the game is structured in general Uh, and so it kind of makes sense that this is being written on the fly and and being able to respond to what maybe what felt right in the base game and all that stuff but yeah i was so i was just like that's honestly a terrifying amount of writing to have done (laughs) in in just a month yeah i mean i think it's really a credit to them and how they built this game also with those inspirations from tabletop which they talk about in the interview of like in a tabletop campaign you can just take stories and then like add on a new thing 
and just keep mm-hmm. going with the system you have. That's a system made to allow you to tell stories easier. And that's kind of how they their conception of Citizen Sleeper is, as kind of like a systems vessel to tell these stories. Yeah, which I think is really interesting. I don't remember if this actually made it into the piece, but they, they did discuss a bit about, they said they started making games as soon as they could. And so they have this suspicion that people who have more experience with tabletop games, we may start seeing uh, kind of an increase in the speed of games coming out that are influenced by tabletop. Mm-hmm. Because folks who are, I love tabletop RPGs. It's like a wonderful like discipline and community and, and, and an art form. And there are a lot of folks in that community that are making these games who are tend to be queer, tend to be like working random jobs and doing this like on their time off. So it's like, it's not a very lucrative thing at all. And it's, it's, but at the same time that it has kind of a low barrier to entry because it is essentially just writing. Um, it's, it's very difficult work, but there's not like a technological barrier for a lot of it. Yeah. And the fact that they were able to build these tools and like, there are other similar tools available now, we could be on the cusp of seeing people who are influenced by those games now have access to the tools to make video games, which who knows if that is actually like going to happen, but it's a very exciting prospect to me because I think like the more video games can model the kind of expansive storytelling uh, of tabletop RPGs, the, the happier I will be at least. In a way, it reminds me of like indie tools on a smaller level of like mm-hmm. Twine games. Yeah. Which like the sure. whole, you know appeal of twine is that it's like you don't really have to know coding you don't need to know how to like make a big game you can basically make a text adventure yeah if you can wrap your mind around this terrifying web of story fragments you've written (laughs) uh, then you can do it yeah but i think you know both catalyst and citizen sleeper and talking to both of them in really really great interviews from you i have to say um thank you but it's, it's really interesting how both of them kind of have this intersection of the ways that development tells certain stories, both be it, be it trans or not, or just, just stories that relate to current moments and how the developers thought about implementing that. It's really, really interesting connections. Yeah, it, it, it's great to see these kind of, I don't want to call them political because it's like our existence is being politicized by people like beyond our control, but very timely things are being discussed. And I think that's, I don't know, that's, that's heartening to see, especially when, you know, we've, we've had so long of not seeing these stories be told, Mm -hmm. uh, especially in this medium. It's, it's, yeah, it's good to see. And I hope that this, this kind of trend continues. Yeah. I, I also have to say for me, it's like, it's one of those things where I'm like, video game developers, I am such an easy mark. Like with both Guilty Gear and yeah. Apex, the second they announced their trans character, I was like, sold. Done. Yeah, I mean, I played a battle royale for this. <laughs> Do you have any idea how hard that was for me? I, I downloaded a hundred gigabyte first person battle royale just to be bad at it and, and look at a yeah. cool character. Yeah. I signed up to play a game where I might get yelled at for doing a bad job. (laughs) (laughs) That's not something I do. But yeah, I think beyond that, in our little, you know, fun corner, uh, outside of other things, I have been playing Harvestella right now. Yes, I want to hear all about it. Yeah, so it is out now. I'm still working on my review. I haven't had enough time with it, but... I played the demo like a month back when it came out and I was really into it. It was only like a two hour demo or something, but now I've gotten like more time with the game and it's just so good. <laughs> <laughs> like it's so Harvestella is this blend of farming sim and like RPG from Square Enix. So it very much is the joke I always make is I call it final farm to see. Um, Great. And it really it rolls truly, off the tongue. Yeah, it truly is that like you do farming in the morning and then you just like go out and you do your wild fantasy endeavors where you like meet people from the future or weird like robot ladies and (laughs) you just go out and do combat and it's it's so fun like it is i think the perfect new take on the farming sim genre that like i needed to dive into it again because i i liked stardew valley 
uh, but I haven't really played a farming sim since then. But Harvestella is just like so, so good. What is it that like feels new to you about it? I think what it is is that the story actually feels like important and interesting, mm. which I, I'm a big like story person in my games, so I like expansive RPGs. And I would say Harvestella, the ratio of like RPG to farming sim is like maybe 60-40, like heavy on the RPG side. Like it's it's heavily about the story and about the combat and about like upgrading your combat jobs and having your party members and equipping things and going to do dungeons. Um, and then also you have farming, uh, which is mostly a way to like make a lot of money and accomplish like little side quests. But everything is just tied up in this little bow that it feels like I can spend my time doing whatever I want at the moment. Like if I if I get bored of just doing farming stuff, I can do combat. And if I'm bored of combat, I can like go hang out with, you know, any of the pretty ladies in town and talk to them. <laughs> or I can go like waste a few hours fishing. There's there's it in a way, it almost feels like a Final Fantasy fourteen solo experience. Ooh. Just the way that it has so much stuff to do. Yeah. And I very much enjoy it. I do have to ask since you mentioned the pretty ladies, how is the romance aspect so, to it that apparently exists? So kind far, of? it's like fine. It's very much right now of, you know, party members or people you can like build your relationship with. They'll give you like special quests. And if you complete the quests, you advance your relationship with them and you get closer. Mm. And so since I'm early on, like it doesn't, I haven't, you know, seen romance blooming but I'm, I'm hopeful that soon I, I will be smooching. Yeah, I just want to be able to hold hands with that teacher with swords. Exactly. <laughs> it's the teacher. She's so hot. She's, yes. But and yeah, the swords will, only make her hotter. <laughs> I will I will update you on my um, <laughs> romance progress. Please do. But have you been up to anything? Yeah, uh, so I haven't really had a lot of... I, I have been working... Um, a lot on these interviews and, and uh, there's a game I'm playing for work. So I haven't had a, too much time for like games for pure fun. So really the only one that I've gotten to touch was, uh, I know we talked about this already a lot, but Apex Legends. Mm -hmm. uh, I got to dive in for a couple of, of matches uh, and get over my, my fear of letting down a couple of strangers on the internet. And I found myself really enjoying it like way more than I expected to. Like, honestly, I was just like, I'm going to play one match just so I can just know what I'm talking about for, for the for the recording today. And I ended up playing for like a couple of hours. Uh, I got really into it playing Catalyst every single time. I think what I really liked about it, and this, this kind of really does apply specifically to Catalyst, was the way in which when I play Final Fantasy XIV, I, I, I like healing. I don't do it that much because it scares me. So I generally will play either like the bard or the dancer, which are both roles that allow you to kind of help the team, like add doing buffs either to prevent damage or to make them better at, at doing damage. And that's kind of a role that I always like falling into in multiplayer games is like, I'm not going to be the person who's getting a million headshots. I'm not, I'm going to be the last, you know, I'm going to have the least number of kills on our team guaranteed, but I like having positions where I can, support the rest of the team and allow us to like all succeed together and i think catalyst is really great for that and also allows these really clutch moments like there was one match in particular last night where we got caught in a firefight between three different squads that was along this kind of like cliff face so on one side there was a way that you could kind of like retreat far enough around the cliff to not be seen and it turned to this really protracted battle that lasted like four or five minutes because we just, no one could knock the entire other team out. And Catalyst fulfilled a really interesting role there where like anytime things got too hot or one of my teammates got knocked down, I could throw this ability she has that kind of like slows and damages enemies. And it would slow them just enough that I could pop them back up or get some healing in. Or one point where both of my teammates went down and I used her ultimate, which forms like a wall. And I was able to revive both of them and like the second I got them both back up, 
one of the other squads burst through the wall. But because they were like slowed and blinded by it, we were able to take them all out. And it was just this like incredibly, I don't know, empowering moment of being like, yes, we would have all died if it weren't for me. And we just wiped this entire squad because of like, not because I'm like good at shooters, but because we have this like defensive kit and we were like, had each other's backs. And we did end up like losing to the other squad in that fight, but it still felt like it, it fulfilled that exact thing that I love doing and, you know, being like the utility player. Uh, and I don't know, I was just, I was surprised by it because I generally like battle royales are not my thing at all. Uh, but just like, this might be the case with any defensive character. I don't know, but specifically playing with catalyst, I was just like, this really fits the way that I like playing games. And it was, it was, it was cool to have an experience that like I, I, under normal circumstances, I would not have, have downloaded Apex just because I know I am bad at these games. Uh, but but it, it allowed a, a way of playing that, that I really enjoy. Yeah, I mean, I, I've hopped in and out of Apex every once in a while. Um, and I think I think it's about time to hop back in now that Catalyst yeah, is there. Uh, absolutely. Sounds like really fun, though. The, the whole kit sounds really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really I think they did a really good job with it. Well, uh, that wraps it up for another week at Girl Mode. Uh, thanks for joining. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at girlmode underscore pod. And when Twitter dies, we are at co-host at girlmode dash pod. You can follow us individually. I am on Twitter and co-host at the Willow Row. And I am on Twitter and co-host at Robin Bombas. Uh, well, thanks again for joining us. Uh, bye. Have a good day. <laughs> See you next time. We'll come up with something better, maybe. Yeah. Drive safe. <laughs>